start it here. It's suggested that sumo wrestlers can eat up to 10,000 calories a day. Now, you know, for their profession, they have to carry a lot of excess weight uh, when they're in the ring and tumbling with other warriors. Uh, my guest today looks at the uh, matter of diet and weight from a completely different perspective. Uh, beyond sumo wrestlers, a lot of uh, Americans and people all over the world, uh, either by way of diet or a number of other factors, have struggles with their weight. Uh, my guest today is Michael Green, Dr. Michael Green, who I'm so delighted to have join us and share with us a bit about his profession, but more importantly, his background and story. Dr. Green, would you just start off by giving us a short synopsis on your background and how you arrived to where you are today? Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a journey. I'll tell you, it, it's been obviously one of ups and downs. Obviously, anyone that makes it uh, in life has to go through things. But uh, I'm originally from Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, born and raised. Uh, I did my undergraduate studies at uh, Prairie View M University. Uh, and from there went on to uh, medical school at IU School of Medicine. Um, but when you talk about who I am and where I, how I've evolved today, has a lot to do with just my upbringing and, and just the family dynamics. Um, from med school, I went on to take on a, a fellowship uh, after my residency at University of Illinois uh, in general surgery. Uh, I'll tell you where I'm at today, I wouldn't have ever thought that I would be there from the standpoint that you never know what you're going to do until you put a situation to do it. Uh, but what I found the impact I could have in treating obesity uh, was a phenomenal way to really transform and trans. Um, uh, lives and improve the outputs of individuals. Thank you, uh, Dr. Green. So Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, I've been there, I think, once. Uh, it was actually uh, uh, the occasion of the centennial of uh, the fraternity that we both are members of. But take me back to Indiana. What was your uh, upbringing like in Indianapolis? So, um, I bought, like I said, born and raised in Indianapolis, uh, uh, a true Midwest town. Uh, I'm the middle child, uh, older brother, younger sister, and a two-parent family, uh, but had a very uh, close family dynamics. And I, as I recall growing up, everything was family-centric. Um, the holidays were a great time to bring family together. Uh, it seemed like our house was what we considered the corral house, where um, both sides of the parents, my mother's side and my father's side, would always come over for the holidays and, and, and unite in, in that manner. Um, and, and so having that, uh, that basis and that background, I think, has helped me evolve uh, to my current morals and values uh, to date uh, as well. Great, great. So when you're in Indianapolis, and I know it's a, it's a fairly large city, uh, great story, mid a child. Uh, what was it like when, I guess, you know, tell me about your high school years. When did you attend high school there? So I went to Cathedral High School. It was a, it was a private high school, uh, one of those college preparatory schools. And I would say my parents always uh, wanted to invest in us and give us the, the best opportunities to succeed in life. Um, so we looked at various uh, schools at the time. Uh, and I think I just had this conversation with my uh, mother uh, in regards to how we chose Cathedral. Um, and, and so at, at looking at an opportunity to, to challenge us at an early age to make us better prepared for the future, 
uh, we ended up choosing Cathedral High School because they were given us the opportunity to really excel in that manner. Um, and that's kind of how we chose the private school route. So I think that that um, that really was was, I think, a cornerstone of my fundamental education from my high school. Uh, during high school, uh, I was kind of like a small guy. I, uh, I weighed like 98 pounds. So the transformation that I've gone through through the years is also a great one. Um, I wrestled 98 pounds my freshman year. Uh, and, and so, uh, but I, I would say my growth didn't probably start uh, till more my college years or, or as I matriculated into med school. So, uh, but definitely growing up, uh, play most sports, uh, football, a little baseball, basketball, but being on a smaller frame, I did not play throughout my uh, high school days, uh, but was there definitely very involved uh, on the academic side. I uh, was committed to my craft in that regard, but, but still enjoyed the sports. Uh, I was actually a team manager of the basketball team. And so you can imagine growing up in the city uh, in high school, just a kid that's not very large, not very big, uh, but had to drive to be in athletics, um, um, but being uh, kind of a smaller frame and just kind of fitting in and, and developing that. Yeah, so I guess the NFL wasn't in your future, and you realized that at an early age. But, but you know, I say that, and I, I say it to individuals now. I look at it from a standpoint and say, you know, I was a drafted number one draft pick. However, I chose going to medicine to save lives. Here, ah, here. I love it. Dig it. So uh, in Cathedral, is that sort of a, is it like a Catholic school that you went to? or It is. So it's Catholic okay. high school. Uh, I'm, I grew up in the Baptist church. Um, but it definitely was a, uh, a private school and kind of a college preparatory school. Uh, there were quite a few throughout the city, Minneapolis, and like I said, we chose a cathedral because of what uh, we felt would give us that, that edge or at least challenge us. Uh, when you think about the school systems, and I think it's been more prevalent to date when you think about uh, the funding uh, that we see throughout schools and the disparity that we see in different school uh, systems. I think one of the things my parents wanted to do was make sure that we at least had uh, that academic advantage or at least an opportunity to be able to excel in an environment that would be conducive to higher learning. Certainly, certainly. So how does a young man in the Midwest uh, decide, I'm going to go down to Texas for college? And how did you select an HBCU, or in this case, Purvier and M University? Right. So great question. In fact, you know, so as far as I can recall, I had uh, envisioned going to an HBCU. Um, there was a, a council, Indianapolis Black Alumni Council, uh, lady by the name of Ruth Woods, actually was very heavily involved in, involved in some of the organizations that I was involved in growing up. And in particular, it was called Top Teens of America. And that organization, uh, I met her through it. She told me a lot about uh, Prairie View University at the Times uh, because she knew of my passion uh, to become a physician. Prairie View had a strong uh, pre-med program and it was under the leadership of Dr. Uh, George Brown and she told me a lot about their uh, honors college, the ben Benjamin Banneker Honors College and so it was a conjunction with the education of that particular program and, and the opportunities it provided African Americans uh, to really excel in the health professions which kind of sparked my mind to go to Prairie View. Uh, so you fast forward scholarships and all the like, uh, I ended up at Prairie View. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. You know, I think, especially in, in, in more recent times where we've lost this 
uh, uh, this desire or or inclination uh, to want to pursue, you know, higher learning opportunities at HBCUs because there's almost a stigma that, well, you don't get the best educational opportunities, but you prove that that to be uh, completely different. Uh, and I know that in the era that you went to PV, there were a lot of exceptional students who got great education that built fantastic careers since then. But tell us a bit about what your experience was like uh, at, at Prairie View as an undergraduate, especially when you got there early on. What was it like coming down to Texas from Indiana? So first of all, it was hot. I tell you, like, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know, most people uh, probably visit the school and, and decide where they're going to go. And um, I visited a lot of other HBCUs prior to uh, matriculating at Prairie View. Um, but once my mind was set on PV, I just accepted that as that's where I'll be. And so I remember vividly uh, we drove down the first time and it was my my uh, father, uh, my sister, who's a year younger than I, and then my cousin, who's actually older. Um, and we drove down and my mother had the luxury of flying down later. <laughs> so she didn't have to deal with it. And so we drove through the middle of the night and we got a flat tire in Texarkana. So that was my first introduction to Prairie uh, is, is that hot car ride down. And I'll tell you, that's probably the last time I took that ride because we would fly back and forth ever since. Uh, but you're right. Um, I'll tell you, transitioning to college, having grown up in a, a uh, Midwest town, uh, understanding the great sense of autonomy uh, on a college campus, uh, an HBCU with that, um, combined with really no family dynamics or uh, any true friends, I would say, at the time. I'll tell you one of the things that I, I pride myself on, and I'm pretty much a chameleon. I mean, I can pretty much blend in any in, in environment and, and I can endure uh, whatever I need to, uh, to excel. Uh, and so having gone to Prairie View, um, I had my mind set on what I was uh, wanted to do, and, and that was to be in medicine. And so early on getting involved with programs that um, – Gilded me toward that, but also uh, getting with a group of people. I'll tell you, the first semester was a very interesting one. Um, and it's interesting when I look at the number of people that enrolled uh, their freshman year. Everybody was a doctor. I mean, you would be surprised the number of individuals that were in my uh, freshman uh, science classes. Second semester wasn't the same. I mean, we had people dropping majors like nobody's business. and. And you look back at that transformation and it really resonates in my mind that um, you really have to have a good sense of who you are because being put into an environment like that as, as a kid and as a young kid, um, you really can turn things around pretty fast. And so I would say that um, having had uh, the roots and had been pretty grounded early on in life, um, though, you know, not saying that we did everything right the first time. But I would say that kept me on track uh, to obviously unfold uh, my endeavors to do what I did. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you uh, shared about that. I, I recall freshman biology class and it's like, how many of you all want to go to med school? And then all the hands go up. And then <laughs> by the time you get to cell biology, it's like, OK, it's like, you know, 20 of us in a classroom now. And so. And I know you probably, I don't believe I shared this with you, but my undergraduate degree is in biotechnology okay. with a minor in chemistry. So I know it all too well. Right. 
I I just didn't uh, follow that that route after I volunteered at Ben Taub here in Houston, which is our trauma center, because uh, I realized medicine was not the career for me. But uh, right, definitely. Uh, but I can definitely relate to uh, what it was like in those early days. Uh, beyond just uh, your academic activities, you were also involved in other organizations. Can you tell me a bit about those organizations and um, sure. what difference or in, that they make for you or impact and influence that they have on your college experience? And so so my, my cousin that I referenced that actually helped drive down to Prairie View was actually uh, a member of Kappa Alpha Psi. Uh, and he was my older cousin uh, by several years. So he was someone that I always looked up to and, and, and kind of modeled um, what I envisioned college being like. And I remember uh, him coming home for the holidays, having pledged with his cane and you know, so I knew a little bit about it, but didn't know a lot about it. Um, and so, um, and then as I got on the yard um, and, and looking at how I view organizations and what they stood for and, and what uh, uh, it meant to be a man of color at HBCU, but also a man of the world. And, and so I ended up uh, pledging Cap Alpha Psi in the spring of 89. And I would say within that organization, I probably have created, obviously, lifelong um, bond. And, and I say that, and it's easy to say that, you know, your friends, but I, I would definitely say, and, and I know everyone's partial, and I've seen a lot of, uh, and you can probably relate as well, not everybody necessarily on your line is people that you keep up through the years. But I'll tell you, my line, um, um, I would say, is probably one of the closest and, and one of the most successful lines um, that has come through Isaiah Vayner. And, and I don't just say this, but actually, it was actually uh, some more of us who have seen what we have done uh, in regards to how we have maneuvered in life, uh, physicians, uh, uh, the DA of Dallas, uh, uh, Craig Watkins, uh, uh, attorneys, I mean, uh, Lord, I mean, so we, we have really done great things. And, and one of the things that um, I pride myself in is being uh, and creating that bond with those uh, fellows that I pledge with and things that we do. And to the point now where it's our time to give back. Uh, and I, I relate that to one of the things we were able to do and the donations we've given back to the yard in the name of Kevin Sign Online at our most recent 30 year anniversary. So I would say that organization and, and with that, having had some, uh, some of my uh, SANS who actually um, were also in medicine. So we had that and, and we joke about it. Um, one of the honor societies, beta, 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 uh, so one of my fraternity brothers, one of my Sam's, we like to talk about we were double frat uh, because we both were in the honor society, but we also play as Cap Alpha Psi. Nah, that's incredible. And so you have this wonderful experience at PV and you're one of, I mean, it, it's incredible when I listen to or, or have exchanges with people who had a clear sense of what they wanted to be so early on. I think that it's meaningful but it, it's also something when you can follow through on that, especially something as uh, intensive as pursuing a career in medicine. Uh, you were able to get through college. What happens next? Uh, what was sort of that transition your last couple of years of college? And then uh, what was the process of applying to medical school like? And how did you ultimately settle on the, the med school that you ultimately attended? So, you know, I want to, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back one second because I want to kind of sure. get that, that vision of how I even chose medicine. 
Um, I was one of those kids that were, was intrigued by the unknown. And, and so my grandmother, she actually worked in a postpartum um, um, delivery area after, after obviously after uh, delivery. Um, and so I always had this intriguing, and growing up, if you recall, kids weren't allowed to go to the floors, right? And so I always had this vision like, well, what's going on up there? Like, you know, why can't I be up there? And so for me, it really kind of started off as, I want to understand what's behind the closed door. So a very inquisitive child growing up. And then one thing about me is you say what you want, then you get involved in things that you say. So involved in a lot of organizations that that led me to that, which just further uh, enhanced my um, interest. Uh, then obviously did well in the sciences. And the next thing you know, I'm applying to med school. So I would tell you uh, in college for the latter part of my undergraduate was the preparation for med school. And it was probably a, a very nervous time. Um, having went to school in Texas, not knowing where I wanted to go um, as far as med school, I you know, applied all over. I always thought that going back home Indiana would be what I would do. Um, but the odds of getting into medical school were, were great. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, that wasn't just a, a chick shot. I mean, you had the MCAT that you had to plan for and prepare for. Um, obviously, maintaining your GPA, letters recommendations. So um, that just goes to show that there, there are still hurdles and there's always ways um, to which you have to continue to excel in that uh, avenue. And, and so Toward the end, as you mentioned, what did I do toward the end? I, I had uh, taken some summer school classes and also some enrichment classes uh, during my uh, college years. And so my last semester was pretty easy. Uh, in fact, it was to the extent where what I needed to graduate for is hours uh, and what I had taken was a lot more. Because my father was like, you know, you're not going to just be uh, here at school on scholarship and not take classes. So, I mean, I was taking extra classes to just... Uh, you know, make sure that I was well-rounded. Uh, I took an African marriage, uh, African studies class. Uh, also even had at the time, which I wish if you say, what could you do differently? I wish I paid more attention in that computer class. I <laughs> understand it now, <laughs> the importance of computers. Um, I wish I had done more there. Uh, but that transition from applying to medical school, uh, I had quite a few um, um, interviews set. Uh, but once again, you know, Cost was an issue, and most of the schools that I looked at were back in the Midwest, Michigan, uh, Tennessee, IU. And so uh, I did arrange for my medical school um, interviews to be when I was on Christmas break, because that way it would be ability for me to drive out and do that. Uh, so I postponed some, but I had already made it to my uh, Indiana University interview. And so when I got home for the holidays, actually, I had received my acceptance letter from IU School of Medicine. And so for me, that was like, oh man, I'm there. So I actually canceled all the other interviews I had because once again, I envisioned going away to school, but I always envisioned coming back home uh, and taking part of medicine there. So I was enrolled, uh, obviously the next fall, IU School of Medicine. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure it must have been an exhilarating feeling uh, getting accepted into the school that you wanted to uh, get into. And then you have to prepare and, you know, seven, eight months later, you're showing up and you're a first year med student. Tell us what that first year of med school was like. I would tell you, you know, um, it, it's um, a lot of work. You know, it's funny. They, they say the first 
two weeks of med school is like a semester <laughs> of a class. And what I mean by it is it's the coursework. Um, you know, when you're spending maybe four or five weeks talking about the Krebs cycle um, in undergrad, and all of a sudden now that's just a refresher in the first, you know, few minutes of a class. And so I think the the pace is uh, obviously a lot greater, but also the depth uh, to which they go into is a lot greater. Um, and, and when I look at the first year of med school, I'll tell you, it, it's, I look at it as very similar to pledging. Um, you know, it's hard, but fair. Sometimes you get the bear, sometimes the bear gets you. And I say that because the things that I had to learn when I think back on it, why did I have to learn? Um, mm -hmm. you know, like when you think about some of the configurations that you had to learn, I mean, I just remember having to draw the cholesterol configuration and I'm thinking like, Hmm, I've never seen anyone come to the emergency department that this cholesterol configuration came across their forehead, but more or less that you, so it's the things that you have to learn that put you through things that, and I'll tell you, uh, like anything else, you look to your left, you look to your right. And I would tell you, and especially when I look back where I was at, at IU Med School, there wasn't a lot of people like me in the first place. Uh, having left HBCU and then coming back to Indiana, med school that had less than 10%, um, and, and obviously those that I, I studied with, you know, I know fact, a few of them didn't finish. And, and so it, it's another hard cold fact that uh, sometimes societal, uh, academics, learning is not always conducive to everybody. Um, and yes, we learn differently, we apply differently, but there is a systemic um, component that plays into that. And so uh, it was hard uh, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I mean, obviously we are um, creators and or we are part of our own destiny. But I'll tell you, uh, having seen some friends that didn't make it through, um, put your situation to which made me more driven. But you did persevere. You did make it through. Um, after the first year, you know, I know uh, another doctor that I interviewed described it as drinking water from a fire hose. And right. then they tell you you can't let the water hit the ground, which is impossible. But he right. says you give it your best. So you give it your best. You get through your first couple of years. And I believe you go through rotations, sort of the latter part right. of that. Uh, can you talk to us about that time period? What rotations did you go through? Uh, and I think at that point you had decided surgery was what you wanted to pursue. So, so early on, um, going into med school, I thought of a surgical specialty. Uh, I'll tell you, I initially thought about orthopedics. I was the guy that wanted to be that guy on the bench, the Indiana Pacers bench or the Indianapolis Colts bench. I mean, that, that's what I envisioned of sports doc being. Um, but I'll tell you, that's only a small part of the process. I mean, you still have the 80 year old lady that falls and breaks her hip. Uh, and, and so, yes, early on, um, I, I did change once I got into, um, uh, my rotations. Um, and I would tell you that, uh, the rotations are really where I probably thrive, uh, from the standpoint, uh, I feel as though I've had always an infectious personality. Uh, as I mentioned, I was a chameleon. I can obviously blend in in every environment situation. And so... I think the compassion um, that that I was able to show patients and then obviously empathize with uh, people that are going through things, I think made it easy for me to acclimate 
to really wanting to to give back and i i, I think they sense that um also a level of interest and and i found myself to be a technical guy meaning that you know getting action i mean i was never one that could sit at a desk and and, and enjoy doing work i mean i take my hat off to those individuals that sit behind a desk and i laugh saying you know what i'd be somewhere asleep in the corner i mean so i was always involved and wanted to be something more of the action side so uh, surgery was one that i thought would definitely suit my uh, level of, of energy and interest and and early on i thought about uh trauma because when you think about the opportunity to really get in there and really change someone's life and, and save someone's life was really exhilarating for me yeah so um you you mentioned you you had this sense i'm still trying to connect the dots um because i think it's essential mm-hmm. uh, and i've heard several friends who will say hey i started off in this rotation and then when i did this one it was the aha what was that aha moment for you so so you know obviously i started off from a medicine rotation it was a three-month rotation uh and you did outpatient and, and i actually enjoyed all aspects and, and i used most rotations as a sponge just to learn um, uh, what was going on. But I'll tell you, my, my surgery rotation uh, that I did with Dr. Medora, uh, he was very influential in, in my decision-making process and, and really probably converted my mind of saying that, you know, the world of general surgery uh, was very interesting to me. I mean, actually, as a medical student, being able to, and back then, we were probably more aggressive in allowing people to do things than we are today. And when I tell you, as a medical student, opening the abdomen, putting my hands and touching live organs and, and, and truly being a, um, an impact in a case. I mean, to me, that was what I found to be like, wow. You know, if you say, what's your wow moment, that would be it. Knowing that here I have the opportunity of making a difference in someone's life. Yeah. It was really application uh, as opposed to just rote memory, prescribing medication. It was a function of me actually physically being able to do something to change the outcome of someone's life. Yeah. And so as you wrap up med school, I guess you have to take your boards. Um, How did you go through, you know, overcoming the boards? And then uh, I guess the next step naturally is residency. And that's also a competitive process. Talk to us about that. Uh, And I'm glad you bring that up. And, and, you know, and this is the reality of of this. Um, When I applied for general surgery residency, there were more applicants than spots, which just sets up the environment, once again, a very competitive uh, specialty. Um, To the extent where I had people that would come and say, what if you don't match in surgery? What's your plan B? And so I got to thinking like, man, what am I gonna do? And so I actually started contemplating ER because once again, that trauma piece I was thinking about that and and I started to almost explore that. But when I started to really explore what I really loved about the ER was not the ER physicians, but it was the trauma surgeons that came down to the ER. So I was like, and and then I said, you know what? And this is what I tell young guys today. Don't focus so much on your plan B that you don't put all energy and effort in your plan A. So to that point, I didn't apply to any ER programs. I said my first foot forward says, this is what I want to do, and I have to go out and get it. 
And, and let's just say I don't match. Well, you know what? There's another year. What do I mm. do to make myself more competitive in the next go round? Uh, so I applied the process and applied, you know, at the time I was um, a dating a young lady who ended up being my wife and we got actually engaged before, before uh, uh, me graduated in med school toward the end. And, and so I try to look at programs where she could then thrive um, and there were some limitations where she wanted to go. There was one program I was in interview and it was up in upstate New York. She's like, of all places, let's not go there. You know, the, the snow there was just horrific. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I ended up applying to one of the programs in interview. It was University of Illinois. And actually, um, despite all the programs, fell in love with that program, had to do with the proximity of home. Also, it afforded my wife to transition to her job at the time she worked for State Farm. And so their national headquarters was there in Bloomington. And so it allowed her to be able to, to possibly transfer as well. Now, granted, this is all a gamble. Uh, but once again, what I said I was going to do was put my best foot forward and, and make sure that I did all the things I could do to make myself the most um, uh, available and appropriate candidate. And so back in residency or prior to that, you rank. All right. So basically, it's a ranking system to where you interview, you rank your schools and then they rank you. Uh, and obviously, the Lord was looking out for me. Um, I was selected and I selected uh, my number one choice. And that was University of Illinois. And so I was able to attend University of Illinois at the Peoria's, Peoria. Um, and that's actually where I did my uh, residency. Uh, once again, I, I chose that over the others from a ranking standpoint, because what I saw in an opportunity uh, to get in the OR early, uh, the autonomy, uh, but the, the degree of pathology that they saw there. And, and so it, I felt as though it would best prepare me for the next phase of my life. Yeah. You know, you when you describe cutting open an abdomen and sticking your hand in, that was pretty much the point where I was like, I can't go to med school. <laughs> okay. uh, I talked about volunteering at Bentall BR. It was seeing the, the pain and suffering that people endured, and I don't do well with that. And so I was like, ah, let me find another way uh, to try to uh, make a living uh, or earn a living and make a difference. And so but I want you to tell us a bit more. Now you're in surgery residency. It's yes. where you want it to go. What is that experience like? I mean, you, I, I routinely hear, because I also have several classmates who are now physicians, but 80 hour weeks were like the norm. I can't even imagine how much more intense it must have been. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I will tell you now, there's been a transformation, but I'm gonna date you back to when I was doing residency. And so I remember, July 1, that's always, that's the scariest time in hospitals, right? That's when you have all the, the new interns hitting. I was on call the first day. Uh, and so excited. Um, put me in, coach, put me in, right? Uh, and so, you know, back then I had, you know, had a long work day, just really just trying to find out where the bathrooms are, let alone dealing with order sets, computers and all that. Uh, but did well for that day. And then that night I was on call. And so call was obviously in-house call where um, we took care of any emergent uh, issues that came to the ER. We addressed cross coverage of issues on the floor. Um, so I made it through that night. Uh, the, and then the next day, business as usual. So back to the wards, doing the same thing on my other service. Uh, 
And then uh, the way it worked back then, you pretty much stayed in the hospital until the whole team was done. Uh, so if the chief is still operating, uh, you're, you're there. You're cleaning up house, you're waiting, they're done, and then you're rounded again. Uh, and then once we, so I probably speak easily in my first day, it was probably easily a, a 36, 40 hour day. I mean, where I went into the hospital, and didn't go home <laughs> until hours later. I mean, literally. Um, and then because I was the low man on the totem pole, I was sure. the first call. So back then, if there were any issues with my service, they would call the intern. So having been on call overnight, having worked a full day, even when I finally went home, I still was then paged and or expected to return calls to address medical issues and concerns that pertain to my patients. So I would tell you um, the early days of that uh, was rough, but that's what I knew. That's what I accepted because that's what I signed up for. That's what I believed it to be. Now, since then, they've obviously made, you know, new rules and new regs, but you know, when you're in the heat of the moment, um, I've always had the passion of, I'm going to carry my weight and then some. I was never one that wanted to just slide by, skate by. I wanted to make sure that, you know, if you said anything about microgreen, work ethic, strong work ethic, committed, loyal, trustworthy, are some of the characteristics I'd want you to say. And so the only way you do that from day one is by showing that from day one. That's uncommon. What what about your background sort of imbued that mentality, that sort of tenacious approach in you? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, so I have to definitely take my half to my parents, and especially my grandfather. Uh, you know, I said, uh, God fearing and, and grew up in the Baptist church. My grandfather was the uh, board of the D. Uh, chairman of the deacon board. My father was the chairman of the trustees board. So having had that, that sense of being grounded, um, but also I would tell you something that my mother said to me, um, that let me just continue to drive and thrive. And, and, and this was back in my college days, because, um, if you remember back in the, the nineties, early nineties, um, when people got out of school, everybody was a drug wreck. They had car allowances. They had expenses. I mean, coming out of college, you had a job. I mean, you were rolling. I mean, you were doing well. I was still a student. I had friends that went to the uh, National Football League who was rolling. I mean, so here I'm, so I'm seeing everyone around me doing quite well. But here I'm a student. I don't have anything. And my mother said, hey, your day will come. And, and so what resonated in my mind was that you have to be patient, but you have to obviously be committed to your craft and your journey. And so one of the other things that I would say that probably kept me on the straight and narrow was the fact that, you know, we've traveled a little bit and you would see, even in the city of Indianapolis, you would always see individuals that didn't do quite well, the homeless population. And, and I always question because even, you know, as you see, my father would tell stories of people he would see and be like, man, that kid used to play ball back in the day. Mm. And I always used to resonate in my mind was like, what happened to that kid that turned him away from doing something different? And so I was one that said, you know what? I was prepared for the future to the extent where probably overanalyzed a lot, mm. but you asked me, what was my drive and what was my commitment? I didn't want to be that kid yeah. that ended up 
like that kid. And so I figured that only way I can mitigate from doing such is making sure I prepared and plan for my future. I'm so glad you uh, raised that point because I had that same, and I still do, but okay. early on I had that same observation because I would see people, you know, especially when I was just, you know, finishing college. I remember uh, high school senior year, the college day, the guy comes in and he says, look to your left, look to your right. Only one out of three of you would have graduated in, you know, four, five years. Right. And I looked to my left and my right and I said, hey, sorry for you guys, because <laughs> that one was going to be me. Uh, but it's very poignant that you point out that so often we have our peers and our contemporaries who, you know, we all sort of start out in similar places, but then some seem to thrive. And I think you've really couched it and encapsulated it in sort of your background and upbringing and how those things are really gave you the, the, the drive and then the patience, you know, to be able to say, hey, look, all in due time. And I think uh, for a lot of people, especially when you think about going the route that uh, you took, which in my mind is the road less traveled. It's a longer road, uh, but it certainly can yield significant rewards that are very fulfilling. Uh, so I'm glad that you you made those points. Uh, I want to get back into you know sharing a bit more about residents. what your experiences now are like. You've you've gotten through your first few months as a resident. Um, does it get easier? And when did it start getting easier? So I would tell you, it was always a battle and a challenge. And, and I'll tell you, and, and so let me just set the climate. Um, it seems to me everywhere I went uh, through this 10 year period of time easily, I was probably the one. Mm. Not one to settle and say I was the token one, but I was the one. I mean, throughout all there were, we had three, um, resident positions per year plus transitional there were no other african-american surgery residents there may have been some in like family medicine or internal medicine but when you think of the what i call the backbone of the hospital uh and and how things flow through surgery which has been one of the more uh, grueling residencies in regards to time demands and 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 just a, a malignant environment if you will um as they once called it um I was the one um, and, and growing once again in a Midwest town, going to Illinois, Peoria, I, I found myself to be in a situation to where um, I experienced things because of who I was. Uh, and and, and I, I say that now, and, and sometimes you don't think of it like that, but you realize that, that would the examples be the same if I wasn't who I was? Um, what I try not to use my my race, skin color, religion, or anything slow me down. That's what I would always say. I said, you know what? They may slow me down, but I won't let them stop me. Because when I see some of the things that I went through, um, and just just an example of 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 who they believed I was, um, I, I talk of the story to some youth sometimes, and I, I talk about how. I went to a different part of the hospital to, uh, I was on a plastic surgery rotation. And uh, I went to uh, do a case with our plastic surgeon attending. And I was, I was pretty thirsty. I didn't get a chance in the cafeteria. And so there was a refrigerator in the lounge. And I said, oh, 
may I have one of those drinks? And the lady was like, oh, sure, have one. And, and she then proceeded to say, I know you, um, and, I mean, literally when I, when I tell you, she asked me, was I transferring the patient? Was I from the lab? Was I here to clean up? I mean, when I tell you, she basically asked me, was I everything in the hospital other than you're the surgeon doing the case? And mm-hmm. I told her, I said, no, I'm actually the surgeon doing the case. And, and it was just funny. It was just those types of things in those environments. And, and, and when I sit back and look, story after story, it's when they don't know who you are. The problem is they don't even know how to ask. I had another story. I was on a pediatric surgery rotation. And I was one of those guys that, you know, um, I always had a motto. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to save lives and learn. If along the way we can be friends, great. But I'm not sure, I'm not going to be the one that's going to be like, oh, 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 please be my friend. And so I may have carried a chip a little bit, uh, but I think I had to because of the environment that I was placed in. Um, and you could easily be ran through. Um, you know, there's a such thing as hierarchy in surgery residency. And so, you know, having um, your senior residents that pretty much mandated what you did and you just follow suit and, once again, it's you paying your dues, paying your time, and, and but you know, I was a man first. And so I only let certain things draw the line um, as it pertained to to my situation. And, and I think that uh, for that and how I stood up for myself, at the end of the day, I, I got the respect that I think that you have to have in, in a field of alpha males. Because otherwise, you would just become. Uh, but I referenced this, the surgery rotation, some of the comments that were made on the pediatric rotation. And, and I happened to go to the floor, um, and I have a badge on, um, and I was looking through a chart because we were about to take a patient to surgery. And, and the nurse just comes out of the blue and says, may I help you? And I told her, no, and kept going. Now, I knew exactly what she wanted. She wanted to know who I was, and should I be there who, you know, but that's not what she asked me. She asked me, did I need help? Well, I didn't need her help. I knew exactly what I was doing and I carried on. And so it was really a lesson learned for her as well. And I called her out and I said, listen, if you want to know who I am, then ask. And I understand HIPAA is protecting patients, but don't ask me to help me. And I tell you, no, and you get offended. So it was, it was, it was a, it was a lot of that throughout the residency. I mean, situations and examples, I could go on a nauseam that were just that subtle um, of how I noticed like the way I may have been handled or dealt with or the presumption of guilty mm. before everyone understood. Um, and, and so I think sometimes you have to um, humble yourself. And, and realize that everyone doesn't care for you as you wish they would. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is going to want the best for you, but that's okay. And I think that I think those are things and lessons in life that you learn that allow this moment to be only to be only a stepping stone or a bridge to get you to your next journey. And I think that was one of the lessons that I had to really understand early on in life because otherwise you could really get caught up and really feel bad about situations because I don't think the plan feels fair. 
So it's, um, you're going through all these experiences. It's not hard enough on you that you're uh, in a surgery residency. You decide on bariatric, which isn't uh, another very common field. Mm-hmm. How did you reach that decision? And what was, what was the process like of going from being a general surgery resident to becoming a, a bariatric surgeon resident? So in residency, we had a, a large bariatric uh, practice for one of my attendees, and, and they did at the time open surgery. So I got exposed to it early on. Um, toward the end of my residency, I looked at doing a fellowship in advanced laparoscopic surgery. And I looked at that as being the forefront of medicine. When you think about the time in which I explored knowing this of surgery, it was, it was early in the game. And so, in fact, a lot of my attendees that were training me we're just getting started. And so I decided that if I wanted to be in the forefront of medicine, then I needed to blaze and find out how to be in the next, the next level. So I looked at fellowships in MIS. Uh, now I'll tell you, I can't say that I knew that bariatrics would be the platform to which I would uh, thrive or where my practice is today. But what I did know is that bariatric surgery is considered one of the more difficult procedures performed laparoscopically. And I felt if I could man that skill set, it would allow me to extrapolate to whatever else I wanted to do within the abdominal cavity. And so I then took on a fellowship in Washington, DC, um, set out to make sure that I was well-trained. Um, and I'll tell you, it was very shortly after starting that I saw the impact that I could have on people's lives, where I was offering rendering a procedure that allowed patients to resolve, ameliorate, or cure healthcare disease they had been battling for years. When you talk about the quality of life that I was able to instill in the individuals, it became quite evident of where I could figure I could make my calling. I subsequently then was recruited because at the time, a lot of hospitals were looking for fellowship training because across the country, there were a lot of people that were doing maybe open bariatric surgery and they figured that the morbidity and mortality associated with that was high. And if we can now provide a minimally invasive approach, which had been proven to show cost savings, less hospitalizations, return back to work sooner. Uh, it was a win-win for a facility. And so I was recruited and where I started my practice in, in uh, uh, Texas. And I'll tell you, this is another heartfelt story. Um, I look at myself as being a, 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 um, a, a high recruited asset, but you never know your worth uh, because, you know, you, you, it's interesting the fact that when I set out even my residency and fellowships, I always thought about, you know what? I'll be back in Indiana. Um, and, and never thought that Texas would even be that play. To the extent I looked at a, a position that was not far from my uh, family home now um, um, that would get me back to Indiana. Um, and it, it sounded like an ideal opportunity. Um, but I'll tell you something that I learned from my mentor who I did my fellowship under we coined it as the warm and fuzzy. And that warm and fuzzy is that feeling that you get that you belong. They want you there. And, and so when I interviewed at this position, uh, actually in Indiana, I felt that they wanted me there for what I could bring to their practice as opposed to wanting me there to develop my niche in my practice. And so I, I, I ended up declining that offer um, and actually took this offer in Texas because of the organization that I initially came to join, the guy that actually was 
instrumental in bringing me here was actually from Indiana. Um, but he had such a passion for patients, patient care, and he wanted the best available for that population. So yes. in, in, in giving up his niche in the entity and turning that over to someone like myself, fresh out of training, was really mm -hmm. heartfelt. Uh, he understood the role and the position, and that really moved me to say that this felt good and this was a choice for me. Yeah. Doc, I've got to back you up a little bit. Um, you use terms like laparoscopically, okay. minimally invasive. Can you provide some context on what a standard bariatric procedure might have been like versus what you crafted your niche in? And then how essential is it that you took the time to pursue a fellowship? I mean, you've been in school a decade right. now. Um, I mean, it, and this is like post-college, but you still uh, were so committed to go all the way through getting the fellowship. So if you can just kind of talk through that, what's the difference in the procedures and what did it really represent for your industry that you pursued a fellowship? So, so what I would say is that when I talk about open surgery, when you think about a 12-inch incision on your abdomen, and when you're thinking about the obese population where there are layers of tissue that you have to go through and then bringing those layers back together. Uh, clearly, individuals are a lot stronger than any suture we use to bring them together. So there are a lot of forces that increase the potential breakdown of the incision. And so MIS, minimally invasive surgery, laparoscopy, is basically a technique to which we can place trocars, which are basically uh, ports that we place through the abdominal cavity which allows us to introduce instruments to allow us to do the same procedure, but with a minimal incision. So you're talking about a 12 inch incision to maybe four or five, uh, five millimeter, 12 millimeter incisions. So gravely, uh, the impact it had on post-operative pain, uh, wound healing, perioperative complications. And so patients really um, did quite well and got back to what I consider a, a normal baseline a lot sooner, which meant a lot for uh, being off from work, uh, employees, insurance companies, and the like. And, and so that's kind of what the open uh, surgery uh, did for uh, the change, the transformation uh, to MIS. Yeah, and then as far as the fellowship, you know, if you yes. can just kind of hone in again, you, you completed your residency, but then how much more significant was it that you actually pursued a fellowship versus just stopping where you concluded the residency? So, so, it's, so it's funny. I went full circle. So I told you earlier about my passion for trauma, and I just thought about the, 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 the guts and the glory of being on the front line. Uh, and I remember my wife saying, hey, you just need to get out and start working. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that was the conversation we had at one time. And so I almost got caught up and said, okay, you're right. I'm just going to go back to Indiana. I'm going to be a general surgeon and that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, but once again, my drive to take things to the next level and, and be beyond just average, I wanted to push myself to make sure that if I wanted to go back to a community, I wanted to make sure that I had niche, um, a, a training, a specialty component like no other. And so at the time in which I did it, it too was very competitive. In fact, I'll tell you, uh, the time in which I applied for fellowships, it was more like an apprenticeship. You literally had to go around the country and interview for a job. 
Now I want to fast forward. Now it's more like you interview similar to the match where you have the opportunity to look at all the programs you want to, they rank you, you rank them. Well, back then it was more difficult uh, because you would go and apply, you'd go somewhere and they may offer you a job. Well, you may not have interviewed at your other places that you want to see. And they're like, well, no, I need to know. And so it really puts you in a situation to, it's a gamble. You don't know what that next interview will be like. And so it was really a, uh, an opportunity to really dive into who you are, where you want to be, and what you learn. So I had the unique opportunity to have worked prior in, in a course with my, um, my mentor, my uh, colleague, my friend, and where I did my fellowship. And, and at the time, I didn't think that our times would align as far as me being able to do a fellowship at this program. But it's funny how things fall in place. Um, he changed his program to a one-year program, which allowed me, when I was completing my residency, to be able to offer a position there. Um, and, and, and at the time, I, I would say I was quite blessed to have had multiple offers um, at, at some top-tier programs to hone in my craft. Uh, but in choosing the fellowship in D.C., I think that is another blessing because it, it once again empowered me the ability of autonomy. Uh, the skill set, but really the confidence. I mean, when I think back to where I could have gone and what I did in the environment to which I trained under, it really gave me the ability to take that next transition, which I'll tell you uh, was like no other. And that's the transition from I'm now in training to now I'm the trainer. Incredible. Incredible. So, now you're in your career, let's fast forward back to where we were in the conversation. You relocate back to uh, the Dallas, Texas area and you're in this practice, you've made this decision. So take us through the early part of your career. I'm sure your wife is happier. You can finally bring home some bacon. Right, so yeah, she's excited. Now, just so you know, she wasn't as excited because she too loved to go back to Indiana. Her family was there, her friends were there. Her beautician was there. I mean, so, I mean, I'm dealing with issues like no other. Um, so we moved down here, uh, sight unseen. Matter of fact, I sent her down. She picked an apartment out. Um, I still was in D.C. because I finished my fellowship, but getting a license in Texas was a big deal. I mean, I mean, it was a process. You had to take a jurisprudence test. Uh, you had to uh, bring your diploma, show it to them at the state capitol in Austin. I mean, it was a big process, and so it took a long time. Um, and so during that interim, though my fellowship ended in June, I just stayed in D.C. and worked. Um, he made me junior faculty. In fact, because he, at the time, he, you know, he offered me to stay there. And so mm -hmm. I toyed with and contemplated, but then realized that what I loved, and this goes back to my transition, I really inspired to do and see how he did what he did and wanted to say, I too want to be that leader in this space. And so when I talk about that transition, taking that leap uh, into an area where didn't have family, uh, obviously had some college friends in the local area, but wasn't entrenched in the medical community at all. And so um, sink or swim, it was on my back. And so I had to carry that. So when I talk about that transition from matriculating in fellowship to starting a practice, and when I made started to practice, it was on me. I had to create the program from the brick and mortar. Um, there wasn't anything there prior to my existence. And so all the pathways, all the protocols, the in-service and the training and 
And when I first came on, I felt supported. You know, everyone gives, you know, the new guy, things go on. Um, we also had residents that was training, um, but like anything else. And, and I had to just commit. And so I went into the deal saying that this has to be a minimal five-year commitment. I mean, you can't go into a new area and build a niche business practice without spending time and being entrenched in the, in the community. And so I, I left with that uh, premise. Um, and so that's where it started. But once again, as, as much as I feel that I have achieved, I feel that the reality and, and the awareness, not everyone is happy for you. Not everyone wants you to succeed and be successful. Uh, I think when you first come in town, individuals may not feel you as being a threat. When you start getting involved, your name starts circulating, people all of a sudden don't feel the same. Uh, and my first encounter as I began to uh, start my program, uh, I started my program at the county hospital where I was uh, recruited. Uh, our group basically covered all the services at this program um, and, and got started. But I, I soon find out that they wanted me to start a program, bring all my private practice to private patients to their facility, but didn't want to support all the things for the program. And so I learned very quickly that that wouldn't be the best environment for I, which I thought a program should be about because having trained where I did, I understood the components of a successful program. And so this is one of the situations where you talk about rough times and the lows and, and how, you know, you, you set out and try to do things and no one really understands what you're trying to do, but I had stand steadfast. And so next phase was to get involved with an organization and say, okay, they heard about me. They wanted me to come on board. Well, this goes back to when others feel that you're in the community and you're a threat, they will find ways to muddy the waters. And mm -hmm. so when you're dealing with large organizations who already have someone in that space, they, they seem to find ways to kind of skirt you out of the business. Uh, and, and so, and, and some of these things I didn't know at the time, they just were opportunities that went away. Um, however, I did land a, a, a my position and became the medical director at one of the local hospitals, uh, which I'm uh, currently still the medical director of, uh, and I have thrived. We can talk later about that trajectory in my professional uh, career. But even with that venture, once again, as I talk about being a young buck in an area, the wild, wild west, and, and you come with new ideas, um, state of the art and technology, and not cocky, but confident in what you can deliver on. Um, others are not real happy about it because they've been here first and they're not so happy that they're making you the leader of a new program. They're giving you the green light to develop, create, once again, from scratch. So these are the things that, that I'd say as a, as a young surgeon coming out, no one can prepare you for this. These are mm -hmm. things that, I mean, how do you prepare with dealing with just the politics of medicine, politics of a community, when you're just trying to learn where the bathrooms are at the hospital? Mm -hmm. it's, it's really astounding how you have to have tough skin. And I'll tell you, there were some days, and this is early on, and I, I look back and I always share this story because early on, when you talk about some of the lows, I lost all of my living grandparents within like the first two to three years of moving to Texas. And, and it was real rough for me from a standpoint that here I'm trying to start a practice, 
But you recall, I'm very family oriented, very family driven. And it was to the point where I'm like, I can't go. I got to be at work. I'm on call. How can I, you know, it, it was to the point where I was like stressing about like, you know, and you know, in reality, it shouldn't even have been a decision. It shouldn't even been a thought, but that's what I was, it was troubling me. I was like, how do I, and, and, and so when I looked one after the other uh, and not being there uh, and then being away and when I'm seeing uh, some of the metal conditions that were surgical related that I'm like, wait a minute, I need to look at the chart. I need to know what's going on. It, it, it really hurt me to not be there and be involved. And, and so um, those are some tough times. And, and I would tell you, and then the sense of even patient outcomes, things may not go the greatest, but more importantly, you'll come across people that sense of entitlement uh, and, 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 or people that are just not grateful for all that you do. And so I'll tell you one of the more humbling experiences I had and really would set me probably straight early on. Uh, by this time, uh, my baby was born uh, and she was about three months. She was swaddled in her, her, her bed. I came home from a, it was a tough day. You know, like, man, you know, just like, it just seemed like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. Uh, and I came around to her room and I looked down at the crib because I questioned, why am I doing this? Why am I beating myself up? And I pointed at her and mm -hmm. I said, that's why I'm doing it. For nothing else, I have to be here for her. I have to show her the way. I have to work hard and endure and this too will pass. There were many before me that have done it. I need to show her that I'm her rock and I too can do it as well. Wow. It's, um, I have to take a breath on that because you're sharing elements of this journey. Um, and I think that's, you know, we talked early on, obviously, before we came on camera about what the motivation was behind this podcast. And it's what you just shared, you know, too often, uh, I like using doctors. I tell my buddies who are doctors, you know, you guys are the, all I have to do is be like, Oh, he's a doctor. They don't want to hear what I have to say. He's a doctor. Let's, let's chat with that guy. But there's so much more to being a physician, you know, beyond the incredible difficulty and journey you have to travel as far as the academic component is concerned, being in your field, and you've gone as far as even talking about the politics of medicine, which so few people understand. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, who might become physicians or go through the process, they're going in with blinders on, which, you know, you probably in a sense, we're going in with blinders on because you, you're this trendsetter, you're a trailblazer, you're doing, you'd accomplish things that uh, so early in your career that a lot of people don't even get to accomplish throughout the entirety of their career. So uh, I really appreciate your transparency and sharing because that's really what it's about is helping people understand what the real is, what the real experiences are like, and hopefully those lessons help them be better uh, mentally prepared to deal with and overcome those obstacles that uh, that come even when you're in your career. And, and so, you start your career, you're starting to build a family. Where does the journey take you from that point to sort of present day? Right. So I'll tell you, you know, that 
the, the struggle is real and the journey keeps going. But I'll tell you, uh, you know, you think about when you arrive, it, it's when they hear about you and they don't even know who you are. And I say that from a standpoint of, I had a young lady come into my office um, and when she came in, she was like, it was a double take. And this was, uh, you know, a few years ago. So I was a little much younger, <laughs> but she was like, I thought you were an old white guy. And, and, and I was like, well, um, I can go find an old white guy down the street for you. Now I'm not sure if you can do what I can do, but then, you know, it was kind of a joke and it was just, and she's an African-American lady, but it, 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 it shows me or tells me that there's conversation being had. Um, and, and obviously what everyone perceives or how they perceive, um, because right now when I see who comes to me, how they come to me, the majority of my business is from patient referrals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a plethora of uh, private care doctors and specialists referred to me. But the other thing, which I think speaks volumes to what I have done to create um, a practice, and that's now insurance companies are referring to me. And, and insurance companies, one thing they do, they look at your, your overall uh, cost assessment, uh, your complication profile, um, um, readmission rates, uh, your mortality, morbidity. And so when I start seeing the pendulum change in regards to uh, patients, it has given me a sense that uh, there's conversation being had and I must be at the top of that conversation. So it makes me feel good that I've been able to do that. So my matriculation uh, has been one of that. But I'll tell you, still not being fooled by the situation and the climate they were in. And I'll tell you, when I look back to just the politics of medicine, still exists. Despite all that I have done, uh, and I'll share a little bit with you. So, as I mentioned, I'm the medical director of the graduate uh, surgical program at my hospital here in Duxbury, Fort Worth. I've also been uh, nominated, and I'm on the board of directors. And last year was made the vice chair of the board. Uh, and, and so, as you begin to see how, uh, not only from uh, my clinical practice, but just from a professional practice, I have come. And, and, and those types of positions and things, obviously, I don't take lightly. Uh, and so you obviously have to impact individuals on all levels in regards to who you are, but how you carry yourself. And, and so when you ask me the trajectory of where I'm going, um, I got a sense that I can be a factor and play a role and be the difference in, in the trajectory of what medicine looks like. Uh, and therefore, I have to make sure that I, I hold myself to higher standards. Uh, and so though I know that there's challenges still waiting ahead of me, I know that I've gone through things that some people never have. Um, but I can't let that hold me down. And I think that's the piece that I try to hold to, meaning that, yes, I know there's differences. I can cry about differences or I can use those differences, understand those differences. So I maneuver around those differences to be the best I can be. Doc, if I could pivot and segue for a second, let's talk a bit about just obesity. What are your general thoughts about, you know, I get the sense that for you, um, you know, this is sort of a a call in and a ministry for you, uh, the practice of medicine. And so let's talk about what the obesity crisis is like in our country right now in the world 
And what are your general thoughts about uh, what would you like to see happen? I mean, I know obviously we're not trying to put you out of business, but uh, but but what are your thoughts about obesity and the impact it's having on people? Yeah. So so to that point, obesity is clearly a worldwide epidemic. Uh, every meeting I go to, it's it's on the platform of uh, multiple countries. Uh, and as you began, there's not one medical discipline that obesity as a disease state does not transcend to another disease. Um, hypertension, diabetes, so we're talking about nephrology, cardiology, plastic surgery, OBGYN, orthopedics. There's not one medical discipline that you can't find a disease state that is caused by obesity. And so that just gives you the magnitude of where we are in the country in regards to treating it. I would say right now about three to five percent of the US population is deemed morbid obese. Uh, we're talking about easily a 10 to 15 million population base. We're talking about of existing disease. That's before we get into prevention. And so now we're looking at, well, how do we begin to treat that? And I agree, surgery is a tool, but I think it has to circle around nutrition, exercise, but also behavior modification. We have to change our behavior and what we're doing, how we train and teach individuals about nutrition, because commonly we like what we eat and we eat what we like. But if you had a better understanding of what nutrition and how it played in your life, their lives may make some changes you'll make. And so surgery is a, a very small percentage of what we do. We're barely doing 1% of the population, barely 200,000 cases are being done annually to impact. But with that being said, it is by far the preeminent treatment for long-term success in fighting obesity because diet and exercise alone has failed gravely in excess of 95% of the individuals that start those programs go back to at least their pre-diet weight. And, and, and it's multifactorial. And that's the thing. We can't just say, oh, if we push away from the table. We have to understand that there's social economic components. We have to understand the genetic component. We also understand the medical, uh, health conditions, the environment. Um, and I think because of all of these components, play into this current epidemic until we start addressing it like that, I think we'll continue to produce more individuals annually that will be obese. Upwards to the excess of $550 billion over the next 10 plus years if we don't change the trajectory of healthcare costs going toward the treatment of obesity and related healthcare problems. That's um, <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot to consider. Three to five percent of the population are morbidly obese. So it's not just overweight. You're talking about people with serious medical conditions. Now, in terms of your uh, industry as a whole, what's the state of uh, medicine? Uh, or is, is being a doctor still this highly attractive uh, feel that you feel like there's a, a, a lineage of people coming behind to come replace you whenever you decide to hang uh, hang up your 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 trainers at some point. Uh, what are your general thoughts about that, and particularly for African Americans going into you know various fields of medicine? Obviously, there's a great disparity in the numbers, and when you start looking at the disparity in African American males, it's even less when you look at the portion of men and women. Um, I think it is a, a stable field because you always will need uh, individuals uh, to care for people. I'll tell you, I think the EHR systems 
and all the technology has transformed or changed how medicine is being done now. But I think you still would need someone that will be able to apply um, uh, the book knowledge, the real life experience to really treat individuals. I do feel that because we as a people have gone through a lot, I think that we're more empathetic in treating disease. I really feel that. Uh, in regards to what I mentioned about just thriving on the wards and, and understanding uh, where we are um, as, as a whole, as a people, I think that uh, the future is bright. Um, it's not an easy path to take, but I still see individuals going into the specialty. In fact, I have a nephew who is actually now kind of following in my footsteps in regards to his matriculation, his interest in med school, and, and, and doing the like. So I think that is a field that definitely has ongoing promise um, because uh, we need individuals that are passionate about caring for people. Um, in my situation, I think it's important that, you know, there may be other vehicles to which you can make money a lot faster and sooner without all the debt. And, and that's why I say, you know, you can't focus on the end game. And what I tell individuals, you know, whatever you do, love, enjoy what you do. The fact that I get up every morning and feel good about going into work because I know I can make a difference is what makes me happy. And if by going in, I feel good, then I'm going to do good work. If I do good work, then I'm going to do the best of what I do. Therefore, people are going to come to me because I'm good at what I do. And therefore, you people come to you, therein lies how you separate yourself from the others. As far as um, <clears throat> talk to me, you, you mentioned that you had a mentor when you were in your fellowship. Yes. Uh, what other role did mentors play uh, along your you know, not just your academic journey, but your career journey as well. I think having a mentor in your life is key because there are going to be things that you go through that you may not know how to navigate through. And, and it's easy to kind of fish through it, but having had the ability to reach out to individuals that have crossed my path through my lifetime, and I would say has, has helped me with that process. I mentioned Dr. Terrence Fulham, uh, a mentor, a friend, colleague, all of the nine um, because of what he instilled in me as part of some of my business savvy. Um, I, I give a lot of respect to him because um, he had no problem with sharing and showing me uh, what I consider the business aspect of medicine. Because you'll find that most of us have no business sense whatsoever because we never get that. And so what happens is we get out into an environment and we get taken advantage of. And so I think that through that um, Toolage, I was able to really get understanding of that early on, which I think has helped me today in regards to dealing with hospital systems, dealing with physicians, and creating my current uh, existence. Yeah. You, you, you made uh, mention of your wife along the way. How important uh, has your family support been along the entirety of your journey? I'll say that it's, it's key. And I think while you're going through some of the toughest times, you may not realize the impact they have but coming to texas without a family basis um trying to start a practice from ground zero uh, though my wife worked had a little more flexibility than i did with my day because you know i can tell you when my day starts but i can't always tell you when my day's going to end and so having someone that i could count on that could hold the household down i mean Knowing that my daughter would be picked up, be cared for, fed, the household looked after. I mean, those are things that you don't think about. And those are things that don't just happen. I mean, you don't just wake up 
and things existing. So having someone that has supported me for the time in which she has, um, uh, despite all the uh, the late hours, the early mornings, truly someone that has been committed to that, I think is invaluable. So having somebody that definitely will ride or die with you is, is, is key in this journey. It, it, it's real. And I think sometimes we take for granted it says, oh, it's there, uh, but it's not. And so I think that that too also goes back to that life work balance. And I think giving and paying dividends and, and uh, respect to that. So I think the family dynamics is a key component to success. Yeah. So beyond paying more attention in that computer science class, uh, <laughs> what advice would you offer to a 20 or 30 year old version of yourself? Uh, so, you know what, I, I would, when I look back to where I've come, I would say, hey, grasshopper, listen to your mother. She's telling you right. You will have your day, but be patient. Mm -hmm. It's going to come. And life is more of a marathon. It's not a sprint. You don't want to be the first there, but you got to start the race to finish the race. If there was one or two decisions you took that you wish you did or didn't take or what might some of what might those one or two decisions be that you either took or you wish you took that you didn't take? Um, uh, as far as you know, I think um, I was the guy that that tried to always. I want to cool money out. I want everybody to be happy. I wanted things just to go well, and and I would say that I spent a lot of time holding a lot of just inside feelings about just not being able to give or do. Uh, and I beat myself up, I think, a lot about it. Um, but as I start to mature and to grow and understand that, you know, where my calling is, where my responsibilities are, I have to realize that not all relationships are good relationships. Mm -hmm. And so there are people that come into your life that really only want to be users in your life. And, and I think that, um, Letting some of those relationships go is probably what has probably allowed and has helped me in my marriage, has helped me grow professionally. Um, but sometimes, you know, you just want in the perfect world and sometimes that's not there. And I think those things that are meant to be will be. And I think people will respect what you do when you when you stand for something. You mentioned uh, the boards that you serve on locally. Uh, you're also pretty involved in a number of other organizations. What are some of those organizations? What are some of the extracurricular things around your profession that you spend time on? Uh, so uh, around the profession, um, uh, some of the fraternal organizations, that's Kappa Alpha Psi, that you're aware of, Single Pi Phi, uh, which is the oldest uh, African-American uh, fraternity. I'm also involved in that and have created a, a cadre of friends in, in that arena from a professional standpoint. I'm involved with the local chapter of the National Medical Association, the CV Roman organization, uh, which is a group of black physicians. And, and we have monthly meetings and dialogue and, and ways to try to promote um, health care and disparities and address some of these same things we've talked about. Um, obviously, at the hospital level, I'm the medical director of bariatric ser services. So there's a lot of training and teaching that I do on that space. Um, in fact, uh, also I'm with the National Medical Association, National on the Board of of the surgical section of that. And in fact, we have an upcoming um, meeting this summer, in which I'm doing a presentation, basically transitioning from COVID. I uh, have a presentation to do for our national convention. Uh, and then I mentioned the board. The board is basically the, the heart and also the hospital's force of development and the growth, for which also that I serve on various committees throughout the hospital. Excellent. 
Um, what's on the horizon for you? What's your long-term big picture? So great question. And it's a great segue. And so, you know, I have created such a passion for the treatment of obesity. I have created my foundation. It's the Green Legacy for Life Foundation. It's a 501c3. And, and basically, the mission is really geared toward educating uh, and the individuals about nutrition, exercise, and trying to transform the obese population and the healthy individuals through the weight uh, through awareness. What you'll find, just even locally, there are a lot of insurance companies that don't cover weight loss intervention, and there are some individuals that don't get covered at all. Uh, meaning they don't have insurance. And so what this foundation is geared toward is really trying to take funding to show people that healthy eating does not have to be expensive, working out doesn't have to be done in a gym, and then also provide them with surgical opportunities that they would not uh, ordinarily be able to afford. Uh, but I want to encompass that in totality, meaning that I want to make sure that people are engaged and involved, and, and by them staying committed, they then reap the rewards of being involved in the organization. Incredible. What thoughts uh, would you offer to um, those who are thinking about uh, maybe following a similar footsteps and any closing remarks you might want to share? I would say definitely um, you have to follow your heart. I say, you know, if you're chasing the dollar, then get out of the race. I think it's important to understand that you have to have true convictions and true passion for what you do because the burnout is real. Um, you know, you won't last in medicine, you won't last in most careers if you don't truly understand. And then you also don't just settle. Don't also, don't be afraid to be told no. Um, decide what you want and find a way to go get it because nothing's promised and nothing's guaranteed. But if it's meant to be, it will be. This has been incredible. Um, I'll, I'll try to recap some of the most important things that I think you've shared. You've talked about the importance of, you know, really being focused in going after what you set out to achieve. Push your chips all in on plan A instead of worrying about a plan B. You've talked about, uh, you know, really striving and excelling in uh, whatever it is that you pursue. You've also talked about the importance of having a passion and a true commitment uh, to what you do. My guest today has been Dr. Michael Green. My name is Lalu Davis-Yemitin, and you've been listening to My Brother Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you.